Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Baresson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. So um, we want to note that today's topic involves a conversation about teen relationship violence, and it might be difficult for some of our listeners. So that's just something I want to warn you about. So romantic relationships are critically important uh, for teenagers and for young adults. And in fact, the most common reason for emotional problems in high school and college are breakups with friends and romantic partners. It, it's the number one reason, for example, that students go to counsel, counseling centers and colleges. Uh, we all know that breakups can feel traumatic for teens, but we often don't talk about how they can be violent in words or in actions. And somehow it feels easier to talk about the sadness, the loneliness, sometimes the isolation that follows a breakup. But violence needs to be part of a conversation too. Uh, violent behavior that can happen prior to or following a breakup, and there are many forms that this violence can take place. Young people and parents need to be aware of the potential for violence in teen relationships, including when teen relationships are disrupted. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we have a very special guest to help us in our conversation. So I'd like to welcome Mary Dunn, who was an educator for 37 years uh, and is now uh, doing work on education about violence in uh, teen relationships. Did I get that right, Mary? That's right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, as we normally begin, um, how was this week for you, Khadija? This has been a good week so far. I think um, MLK Day having just gone, you know, was an opportunity to remember um, the role of love and peace and, and unity. Um, and so that was just refreshing to, to be able to focus on that on Monday. How about you, Jane? Uh, it, it was, I can't say it was a, it was a, a, a good week. It was, you know, this followed a week of just the violence on the Capitol, which was just, outrageous. I think the week for me was really tense because I'm just so worried about the potential for violence, um, not just at the inauguration, but uh, future violence. And um, I guess it's pertinent to the topic <laughs> that we're talking about today. But um, I've been, I've been worried been a worrisome week for me, I guess. I mean, I was happy to see a lot of clips and cuts and tapes of of uh, Dr. King. That was refreshing and in some ways relieving. But um, it was tense for me. Mary, how about you? A, a mix for certain. Um, we had an opportunity to post on our Instagram um, for uh, a memorial foundation for Lauren, um, some some quotes from Martin Luther King that I think you know people need to be reminded of, um, but also 
worrisome. I have um, two uncles who are going to be at the inauguration tomorrow. One of them's actually giving the invocation and it should be this great occasion. And I'm finding that I'm much more worried than I am excited almost. Um, and just the whole, um, since the sixth, the whole triggering for me around violence is very palpable. Yeah. So yeah, um, ten, tense, I guess, is probably a mix of tension and, and excitement over change. So could you start by sharing a little bit about your story and tell us about Lauren? Uh, that, that would be, oh, I think, a good way to begin, and then we can, we can take it from there. Okay. Um, my daughter, Lauren, was murdered 10 years ago by um, her ex-boyfriend. She was 18 at the time, and um, it happened about two months after she finally broke up with him. Um, they were both on their way to college, but um, needless to say, neither of them made it. Um, her boyfriend is in jail for life, and she's obviously no longer here. Um, and as painful as a story as it is for us, for me and Lauren's father, it is also the story of an unbelievable 24 people in Massachusetts alone every year. So it's, it's not a standalone, one-off kind of thing. It's way too common. Um, one of the things that I think might um, differentiate Lauren's story is that um, what I saw were only soft signs of an unhealthy relationship. Um, but I think I was wrong in determining them to be soft signs, determining them to be typical, dramatic, teenage dating violence angst. Um, but it wasn't classic in the sense that I saw bruises or I was hearing stories. It wasn't, it, it was much more subtle than that. And I think that's what makes it easy to miss. But since her murder, um, her father and I, with the support of some local people have started a foundation that's now in its 10th year. And mostly our mission is to educate um, caregivers, uh, clinicians, students, teachers, guidance counselors about dating violence prevention. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, I can't imagine how difficult it is to talk about. When we, when we hear and think about relationship violence, we usually think about violence that happens within the relationship. Um, and you and your foundation are, are really trying to raise awareness on the idea of breakup violence. Um, can you talk a little bit more about breakup violence and, and what it is? Sure. Um, I think as we, and when I say we, I mean a bunch of close friends and family were wrestling with um, what actually happened to Lauren a dear friend of mine came up with that term 
um, breakup violence. And maybe somebody else had said it before her, but I'd never heard it before. And it seemed to resonate with me the minute I heard it. Um, and I think it's a, it's a little different than sort of the umbrella term of domestic violence. It, it, it does pertain to um, a, a range of ages because it's you know, breakup violence can happen whether you're 18 or 58. But what it what I do think it, it zeroes in on is the the time in an unhealthy relationship that is most dangerous, which is something I have really only learned in the past 10 years. Um, that at and around the time of the breakup are is the most um, vulnerable time for the for the victim, and so I think that that term is is um, I think it's it's powerful and it's useful because it sort of gives um, students and teachers some kind of um, name for a particular phenomena. Um, and if you repeatedly hear that term or you are repeatedly exposed to a certain concept, I think um, if, if that happens over time, we're more likely to internalize and operationalize those concepts and those terms. So what we were talking about earlier, um, seat belts and drunk driving and smoking and even recycling, I think are examples of things that have been largely internalized by youth and are practiced into adulthood. And I don't think that the term breakup violence um, is one of those terms that we've been using very much that we could incorporate into um, education and curriculum that might make it more accessible to more people and raise awareness. So when there is breakup uh, violence, how does it manifest itself? I mean, you, you mentioned that you didn't see overt right. signs. Uh, so uh, in your experience, teaching about this and talking about this and asking other people about this, how, how, how does it manifest itself in, in other situations? Well, prior, prior to her murder, which is really the, the, the only time that I was aware of that he was violent toward Lauren, what I witnessed in terms of manifestations were some really severe letdowns um, in Lauren's mood, like when she would be disappointed by, by him or when he would, you know, not show up, those kinds of things. Those would be pretty severe letdowns. Then I saw repeated um, breakups and reunions repeated over time with renegotiating terms of the relationship. Most of the time, I would say with the renegotiation being Lauren moving toward more independence, which while he agreed to it, he could never really tolerate it. Um, another manifestation, I guess, would be a disproportionate amount of telephone time. Um, 
all hours of the night, uh, just a constant in touchness and um, a lot of isolating of her, a lot of attempts at isolating her from family and friends. Um, and I guess another soft sign or manifestation that I didn't plug into really was Nate's aloofness and disregard and lack of empathy for both me and his own mother. Um, I, I didn't really name that until after the fact, but as I, you know, as I look back on things, it was there from, from the beginning. So you mentioned these soft signs and I'm curious who else would be privy to some of these warning signs, for instance, friends, coaches, teachers, or some other adult in a teen's life or in a, in a, in a person's life, who, who else could be privy? And if they, they do suspect something, what should they do? So I think the people who would be most privy would be friends because that's generally who that age group will talk to. And I think that most of Lauren's friends, um, female and male alike, were rather, um, what's the word? Sort of disconnected from, from him. Uh, I do remember one very distinct conversation with one of her friends at my house, this is late, this is probably in January, February, before, right before the breakup. Um, the girl telling me, I just can't stand him. He's a jerk. And me feeling like I had just heard that for the first time, that directly. Um, and I was very clear when I said, well, tell me why. And she said, because he's always looking at her phone and he's doing this and he's not let, wanting to go out with any of us. And he just sort of a, 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 a laundry list of complaints about him and his behavior and how Lauren should be having a good time and she's always on edge. And again, that was the, the one direct conversation I had with a peer who... Um, who made me pay attention, but not enough. Again, I didn't pay attention enough to even that conversation. I do think um, given the amount of exposure teachers have to students, um, I, I've never had this conversation with any of those teachers, but I do think that they would be the next in line in terms of observing behaviors that are concerning. And I do know at one point um, he was on the football team and he had some kind of an injury and they brought him to the hospital. And I took Lauren to the hospital to go see him. She wanted to see him. And when we got there, he had like tried to run away from the hospital. He pulled all of the tubes and stuff out of his and he was in isolation. He was being watched. And so, you know, I'm sure his coach knew about that because the coach was the one that sent him to the hospital. Um, and I'm sure Lauren shared that story with, with her friends. So in, in terms of the lineup, I mean, parents, you would think, but I also realize now that parents are, are probably the last 
in, in when you're talking about 18 year olds, they're probably the last people that are going to, she's going to come to. She rarely complained to me about Nate. She really didn't. I mean, she'd whine about him, but nothing that was. And also there is this, this um, incident where his mother went to Lauren at work and said, please go and see Nate. I'm very worried about him. So she was worried and she had tried to get him to go to therapy. I believe he went once and he refused to take any medication. But so there's, there are the parents, there are the friends, there are the teachers, the school people who are probably most exposed to, to a victim or a perpetrator, but they may not all be getting the same information and they may not all think that it's enough to go on. But if they were communicating more, maybe they would put it all together and say, we need to do a risk assessment on this person. But that didn't happen. If someone were really worried, what, what would the next step be for them? What would they do? Who would they go to? Well, it, I think it depends on who the person, the worrier was. I, I personally would have gone to the, um, the guidance counselor at the school would have been my first step and, and to his parents. But... I did call his parents a couple of times about, you know, let, you know, lay off on the, on the expensive presents kinds of things. That was one of our conversations. I told her I was very concerned after the, the situation at the hospital. Um, a couple of times I had to call his mom and say, you know, this doesn't feel good to me. Um, so yes, talking to the parents, but again, if everybody's not on the same page and, and pe I think people don't often think they don't have enough evidence, right? So they don't make us take a step, but that is really, um, I think when you would get the best result is if you do have people speaking up and sharing mm -hmm. the, the friends, the parents and the school. In, in and of themselves, unless it's very blatant, I don't think you get a full picture and people hold back. In your experience, I mean, you mentioned a number of things and I'm trying to, and I'm thinking about a lot of the relationships that I've worked, worked with a lot of kids that I've, I've seen over the years. And um, some of the things that you're saying um, are not necessarily resulting in violence. I mean, you know, isolation, frequent phone calls, you know, uh, uh, upset, mm -hmm. texting, texting, texting all night long. Um, so when we think about this, can you, can you uh, let us know what you've learned about who might be at risk? What, what characteristics of a perpetrator or a victim, or both, might be things, might, might be traits that all of us should be on the lookout for? Or is that an unfair question? No, I think it's a good question. And my attention came to it very quickly after the murder because I got a lot of, um, I hate to say this, but people, there was a feeling from certain people that, oh, what did she do to cause this? It was very victim blaming and it was very hard to hear. Um, and so I do think that some, there is some, um, 
a group of people that may think that inherently there's a weakness in the victim. And I would say to that, I, I, Lauren was anything but weak. She was incredibly involved with sports and her church and her family and her friends and social um, community service. And she had a job. There was nothing that seemed to scare her. I would hardly call her weak. I mean, I'm not saying she was the perfect teenager. She, you know, as all teenagers, she had her vulnerabilities. She was, you know, very small and she, um, she wasn't the very best student on the planet, but she held her own for certain. She really always had as a, as a young kid all, all the way through 18. Um, so I think that that's a mistake to, to think that the victim is the one with the weakness. I think it's more important to focus on the perpetrator and be aware and have concern for the characteristics you might see there. And I do think that, that um, despite his bravado, Nate was a rather insecure kid. I know that he had issues around the fact that he was um, Japanese American. He did not like that. He had some shame around that fact um, that he vocalized to Lauren. Um, I don't think he was a terribly good student. Um, and I think he was very, very, um, I, I'm using the word shy because I think can't think of another one. But you, if you were to watch him in a crowd, um, you'd think he was pretty shy, unless, of course, he was drinking or smoking pot or whatever. And then he was kind of obnoxious. But I don't, I think that th that would be, to me, the more important person to be looking at than the victim, in my opinion. I mean, I think it, it helps us to stay away from victim blaming for one thing, but it also is really where we want to rehabilitate, right, is by identifying those traits in um, the perpetrator. And I do, I, I think both Malcolm and I have come to this decision, Malcolm is Lauren's dad, this, this belief that shame is a huge, huge piece of, of the, the, um, psychological makeup of Nate, I think it really was. So, so as we talk today, we, we can see that there are lots of people that, that touched the life of a teen um, over the course of their, their, their time. Um, how can we as parents or therapists, coaches, or, or anyone who kind of play, uh, has a caregiver type of a role, how can we prevent uh, this violence that happens in romantic relationships of teenagers and, and how can they themselves participate in these prevention efforts and, and support their friends? So I, I would have to say that in my experience, the only antidote really is education, education, education. And that may be a little bit biased on my part since I am an educator, but I'm so keenly aware of the lack of social emotional curricula for students from the very beginning, you know, through senior year in high school. I think it's at the bottom of most priority lists in schools. What we have seen recently is some um, wellness programs 
cropping up. Some schools now, instead of just having a health class, they'll have wellness programs. And we have gotten our curriculum into schools that have these wellness programs because that's exactly what they're looking for. It's not an add-on if it's part of the program. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't get cut first, but still, it's a good conduit for getting the education into schools. But a lot of um, the poorer city school systems don't have that. So it's very in inequitable. Um, and even a lot of the wealthier suburbs don't have it. And if they do, as I said, it's, it's, it's probably first to be cut when there are cuts, which there always are. Um, but in terms of friends supporting friends and what they can do, I think the answer is the same, education. And if they are taught from the very get-go in a social-emotional curriculum that being an upstander as opposed to a bystander, if they're taught that from a really, really young age, it goes a long way. And, and you know, hopefully it becomes more of a norm to be to be an upstander as opposed to a bystander. But I don't think that just comes naturally. I think, again, they have to hear it repeatedly and practice it. <laughs> um, so I, I think um, that, yeah, education is the only, only tool that I've been able to put my hands on that, that my, and I don't even have proof that that works, but it's, as far as I'm concerned, what we've got. It's the best tool we've got. Um, I do think that that schools could be doing more aggressive work with risk assessments on kids. Um, and they do, but they're also, you know, limited in, in what they have time and energy to do as well and money. You know, just to follow up on that, um, I've done a fair amount of work on looking at um, school shooters. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, the Secret Service and um, uh, other federal agencies have done retrospective looks at the profiles of kids that uh, committed violent acts. And, um, you know, when you look at the profiles, marginalized, scapegoated, access to firearms, maybe having some emotional problems, family problems, uh, but you can't, but the conclusion always was, when you look back, you can't pick out which one was actually going to commit the violent act. So, but just the reason I mention that is because most of the work has been retrospective, has been, oh, what could we look back on and say were the most important factors rather than what you were just pointing out, and that is, we need to be more proactive. And that's where I think you're right, that education comes in. Because in, if we had a wellness, conflict resolution, social emotional learning curriculum, K through college, we'd not only be educating kids, but we'd learn more about what these kids are like and over time have a longitudinal perspective rather than a snapshot, because it's almost always after these events, we're looking at snapshots of different people. Yeah. So what do you think about that? I mean, that's, that's, is that, that's the kind of thing you're getting at, right? It is, it absolutely is. And, and unfortunately, 
what what um, is out there now. Like you said, it, it, it's snapshots. It's not longitudinal. And at least with teen dating violence, I think that um, as first of all, as as people enter intimate relationships, it rises to a whole another level of complexity. But if you think about how young kids are when they are entering into intimate relationships right now, at this point in time, I mean, as young as 13, without the maturity, the experience, the resources necessary to navigate that level of relationship, I think young adults are, are at much higher risk for this. The younger they, they are when they get into it, I think they're, they're at higher risk. So is starting that longitudinal education at the very beginning is, is critical, in my view. I, I, I couldn't agree more that I wish we were more proactive in identifying the signs and offering help um, ahead of time, not after. <laughs> I mean, it could have been a very different, I'm wondering, I don't know this. I, it could, maybe it could have been a different scenario if somebody had offered, you know, good help to Nate. It could, maybe, we don't know that. Or if he were immersed in a program where he felt that his, let's say, shame or, uh, or upset or other issues that, that hadn't come to the surface were able to be addressed. And if yeah, it was safe, safe enough, safe enough for him. So what we're really talking about is not is education, but not just education in, in the didactic or the teaching sense. Mm -hmm. We're looking at more of an experiential learning, self-knowledge, self-awareness program that will help kids feel safe, safe enough to kind of bring out some of the issues that might end up resulting in bad situations. Is that fair? Absolutely. It is. I just, I, I, that's, that's sort of what the foundation is all about, but it is not um, work that isn't without its challenges only because it is just like little patchwork band-aid kinds of things rather than just a way of being in the world of education and having that be as important as math or english or science it just is we don't as a as a country as a people i don't think have i think we've given it short shrift and we're paying for that I think we pay for it ultimately. And I do, I would say that, you know, Lauren um, grew up in our church, our local church in Wayland. And um, I just, it was an incredibly safe place for developing self-esteem and problem solving skills. I just, I, I do attribute much of her ego strength to that place. And if that's where it has to happen, fine. I don't care where it happens. I just want it to happen. And I do feel like they would, they could provide a good model, if you will. I mean, she went every Sunday till she was done with high school. And it would, I think it really had a, a profound effect on her ability to 
be okay with her vulnerabilities and and to um, stand up for herself. So I just wish everybody had that that opportunity, that place to feel safe. Is there anything else that you would want parents and young people to know about dating and breakup violence and its prevention? Um, I would say this, when, when the relationship finally ended, when Lauren broke up with him in early April of that year, I was so relieved. I just, so happy. And instead of going on heightened alert, I completely just reveled in my relief. And I, instead I should have been discussing with her the fact of, you can't go to see him alone. You cannot, you're not responsible for him going forward. And I didn't do that. And I have regret about it and I continue to blame myself for it. So I would say that is really an important time for parents and friends to be involved at the end of a relationship when the victim and the perpetrator are feeling very vulnerable and very emotionally unstable. And I guess I'd also like to think that um, people will share Lauren's story with anybody that they know who's going through a rough breakup um, or trying to leave a difficult relationship. Um, I wish I had heard a story like hers at the time of her breakup because I think uh, it might have made a difference in my own awareness and alertness. So I think those two things are just footnotes. Mary, I am so sorry. And my heart really hurts for you. And, and I really appreciate, and I'm sure so many will appreciate you taking the time to share Lauren's story, such a painful story. Um, and you taking the time to share, share that part of your life with us. Well, thank you. I hope that it can help somebody, anybody. Yeah, and I, I have the same feeling. I, 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 my heart goes out to you and, 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 uh, and the family. Um, and, 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 and I, I think it's incredibly courageous on your part to continue the work that you're doing. You know, I mean, it's obviously still emotional, but, <laughs> but it, but 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 it doesn't stop you. It doesn't stop you. It doesn't stop you from from reaching out. And I, I especially appreciate the last point. And that is is that when a bad situation ends, especially as a parent, and you feel this incredible feeling of relief, it may not be the end of the story. Exactly. <laughs> That 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 a, a really and, and that that strikes me as something kind of new and important 
to me, I've learned something from that. And that is, is that when something is over, it's not necessarily over. It needs resolution. It needs follow-up. It needs processing and debriefing. And we can't just say, well, that's the end of that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think because I wanted it so much to, to end, it was... Yeah, I didn't think in in that way, which I might have in in some other situation that wasn't as personal to me. It's right, and I think you raised another important point, and that is is that um, intimate relationships are. I mean, there are all kinds of situations that our kids get in trouble, conflict, whether it's a conflict with a teacher or a coach or a, you name it. But intimate relationships, particularly for young people. And again, maturity is, is relative. I mean, <laughs> we as, there are many adults who don't navigate these waters well, but there's something about intimate relationships that we really need to pay more attention to. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add, I, um, one of the things, Jean, when you said, but you're still doing the work. And I think that, the reason that I, I can do the work is because in the aftermath of all this, I had the, the incredible good fortune to see a therapist for six years who specialized in, in um, relatives of homicide victims. And she referred me to a mother's group that was for grieving mothers. And my friends and my family and the foundation have all been incredibly... Um, buoying for me in terms of moving forward. And I do just want to say that anybody who finds themselves in this situation, those things made a huge difference for me. And if you can access them, it, it is well worth it. Well, I want to thank you for being here and sharing the story. It's incredibly, it's, well, it's unthinkable. Un unthinkable for me uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners but if, if anybody listening uh, wants to comment uh, ask a question bring something up um, please do so as we typically end uh, what struck you in the news this week Khadija for, 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 for each of us I think what struck me in the news this week is the heightened level of security that is in the Capitol in preparation for the inauguration. And just to know that we're in this place and space in our country, it was just very sobering <clears throat> um, to, to know this is where, where we are after all of these years. Mm. Mary, did anything strike you in particular in the news this week? I think I've been thinking a lot about um, the different levels of, of um, what is the word I'm looking for, uh, flammability that we all have to become violent. What is your point of inflection for that? What is his point, her point? And I, I it's... For me, it's scary that for some people it's pretty low before they can 
react violently. I guess I've been thinking a lot about our proclivity toward violence and, and worrying about it. But also, again, I'm going to say I would like to cancel that out with hope for the coming change. Jean, did anything in particular strike you in the news this week? Well, obviously, the, um, the whole political situation and, and uh, uh, proclivity for violence, but um, uh, got to watch some good football games. <laughs> that was in the news. I mean, I fell asleep during both of them, <laughs> all of them, all four of them. I started all four of them, but I fell asleep, which tells you exactly where my attention is. I mean, it, it, I couldn't, I couldn't even pay attention to, 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 to that. Um, uh, but, um, I guess in the news, you know, what seems to me to be uh, most newsworthy is that, um, yes, we're worried about the current violence, but there's been a lot of historical material in the news about past violent situations, whether it's the 60s, um, the assassination of Martin Luther King and other other pre-election stuff. We consider ourselves to be um, a pretty peaceful nation, <laughs> and yet our history has been riddled with violence. And what occurred to me when I've been hearing about the various other violent episodes uh, in particularly around politics. Um, just as you were saying, Mary, that we haven't done a good enough job preventing violence by our in-school curriculum, K through college, let's say, we haven't done a good job nationally in the prevention of violent behavior. And um, I hope we spend more time doing that, you know, um, President-elect Biden has spoken about um, healing, and many people across the aisle have talked about unity. And I hope as part of their agenda, they'll consider uh, violence prevention uh, and civilized conversation and um, collaboration as kind of... Uh, the next phase of our experiment for this for this country. Amen. <laughs> so uh, thanks everybody for listening, and um, uh, we hope our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Jean Bresson. and I'm Khadija Booth Watkins. <laughs>